Welcome back to We Can't Keep Quiet. I'm Doreen. And I'm Isabel. And today we're talking about Islamophobia. On the 7th of March, the Swiss public voted to ban full-face coverings. And this is part of a rising trend of Islamophobia and sexism in Europe. Um, Switzerland joins a long list of European countries in, in banning face coverings, including France, Belgium, Bulgaria, the Netherlands, Denmark, and Austria. I spoke to Inez Elchich from the Fula Violet, which is part of the Grève Féministe, a Swiss feminist organization. The Fulach Violet is the branch that fights for Muslim women to be able to appear in public however they want. Yeah, well, even though we uh, had planned this for a while, it's quite timely that, um, you know, we're releasing this now after the uh, French decision to take it a step further and uh, to ban uh, girls under the age of 18 from wearing the hijab. I think it's uh, interesting when you uh, listen to your conversation with Ines because she talks about how, you know, it's like one step um, and they knew that they couldn't go for a full hijab ban in Switzerland. So they went for uh, the niqab ban. And then after that, they will go for the next step and the next step. And she speaks about it sort of slowly building. And I think that uh, for France to set that precedent, it's like a very strong statement. And I imagine it's uh, only going to increase uh, the other countries' uh, sort of ideas and Islamophobic ideas about, uh, you know, what they can ban and the uh, limits on people's uh, self-expression that they can bring in. Yeah, it's a really worrying trend that's taking place, not only in Europe, but, you know, also in North America. So uh, without any further ado, here is my interview with Inez. I'm here with Inez Elchich, a feminist and co-founder of Foulard Violette which in English means purple headscarves. Inez, can you please tell me about the organization? Hello, Doreen. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Uh, Les Foulards Violets, which translates to the purple headscarves, like you said, is a feminist organization uh, born here in, uh, in Switzerland, in Geneva, that fights for the right of Muslim women to wear the headscarf without facing Islamophobic discrimination and Islamophobic violence and hatred. What is your personal relationship to Islam? Well, uh, I'm born into a Muslim family, uh, my mother being Tunisian and my father being Egyptian. And I always thought of my religion as an important part of my, my culture and my upbringing and uh, something that uh, my parents tra- transmitted me and uh, with which I had, you know, this link with my countries of origin, as well as the link with, my, uh, with God and uh, my spirituality. So you can say that it translates as well as a feeling of belonging, as well as spirituality. So you mentioned that the Fula Violet fights for the rights of Muslim women to wear the headscarves, uh, wear the hijab or the niqab or, or burqa uh, without discrimination and violence. So how do you think that Islam is perceived in Switzerland? Well, I think it's it's not specific to Switzerland, but, but I think that we should note that there is a, a general uh, mainstream uh, Islamophobic uh, trend uh, in all of Europe, uh, mostly due to uh, populist parties uh, campaigning hard against uh, migration and, uh, mm-hmm. and um, you know, selling this idea of uh, Eurabia. And uh, and uh, like we like French say, uh, grand remplacement, meaning the great replacing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, with this idea that uh, migrant Muslim people's aim is to replace uh, white Europe, 
first by migrating physically and second by promoting uh, Islam in uh, many of, of its forms. And um, I think that this very negative perception of uh, of Islam in in Europe is very wrong uh, on 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 two sides. First, we have to note that uh, uh, Islam is not new to Europe. Mm. Um, as long as there have been Islam, there have there has been Islam in Europe, uh, mostly. And also, one has to note that in Eastern Europe, starting mm. from Turkey to uh, Albania, mm-hmm. Bosnia, are are countries where people are natively Muslim. And also, it's uh, linked to the colonial history of Europe mm. that always has uh, been looking for and uh, colonized Muslim countries, where in Africa mm. or in Asia. So you cannot say that Islam is new to Europe, per se. So um, it's also to be understood in its you know more longer his- historical point of view, but also. This view that uh, that Muslims are aiming to replace uh, Christianity and white Europe is wrong, even on, on the statistical way, political way, and uh, it's uh, basically fantasies that are stemmed for after 9/11 mm-hmm. and uh, following also the war on terror by by um, by Bush uh, in the United States that mm-hmm. you know uh, popularized in in mainstream think, uh, political thinking the idea of you know Islamic agenda worldwide and that you know Trump administration reinforced by uh, having this um, uh, Muslim ban for example so one would say that uh, the roots of Islamophobia are um, ancient because they come from colonization but they have new and renewed forms in uh, in Western Europe since after uh, 11th of September I find it so ironic that um, there's this populist movement to stop migration, and it's like, well, you're the ones who colonized our countries in the beginning, (laughs) yeah, Uh, and you're still benefiting from that, and you Mm. want to stop the people that you colonized from coming here. Yeah, Uh, yeah, well, you know, there is this uh, saying in French, uh, uh, vouloir le beurre et l'argent du beurre, meaning uh, wanting the butter and the money of the butter. Uh, mm. Meaning you want uh, the benefits of uh, having colonized mm. the whole world, uh, exploiting its resources, and also being su- at the same time being surprised that uh, people you steal from <laughs> are going to migrate into the countries where the wealth actually is ge- is, is, is going you took to from us. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Switzerland, of course, uh, has you know this very um, uh, strange public discourse that. Uh, it's not a colonial country that, you know, mm-hmm. Switzerland has no colonies. It has not, you know, it's not like France. It's not like Britain. It's not like uh, these countries who had, you know, colonies uh, abroad. But um, Switzerland forgets that it has immensely benefited from colonization, mm-hmm. uh, mostly through its uh, uh, private sector, uh, to its banking sector, who has uh, an, a very colonial history. And as well as, you know, culture-wise, it's funny that in a country where we, we think of Swiss chocolate as a you know, n- national delicacy, people don't make the link with the fact that cocoa doesn't grow in, in Switzerland. No. <laughs> I'm from Ghana, one of the um, yeah. chocolate-producing countries. And yeah. 
And people never think of Ghana or Cote d'Ivoire when it comes to chocolate. Yeah. So in, uh, in Switzerland, uh, as well as in anywhere else in Europe, you have this uh, colonial legacy. Mm -hmm. And one of the forms uh, that uh, colonial legacy is, uh, is taking a modern form is through the policing of uh, Muslim women's bodies. People want to think that it's only a matter of uh, religious point of view of what is a hijab, what is a niqab, or what is anything else that uh, w w Muslim women put on their bodies. But it's as well as uh, it's, uh, it's for, for, for real, it's an anti-racist and feminist issue. Uh, if we are aware that we live in a post-colonial society, can we accept that uh, the spoils of uh, colonization continues up to today upon the, the bodies of Muslim women? Mm -hmm. uh, can we accept that, uh, that we, we consider Muslim women to be not fully capable of taking their own decisions by the sole fact of being from originally from countries that are not white, not Christian, mm -hmm. not European? Can we just accept that without uh, being aware that if it's so easy to accept for the majority of the people, it's because there is a colonial mindset behind it. Did you grow up in Switzerland? Yes, I was born in Switzerland. So would you mind sharing some of the experiences of Islamophobia that you have witnessed or experienced yourself? Well, I think that um, growing up in Switzerland, being born in the 80s uh, at a time where Swiss, uh, Swiss people were... You know, here in Geneva, we all, we're always proud of saying that we're an international city mm -hmm. with, uh, you know, the e UN and everything. Um, but I remember that when I was a, a child, um, experiences of Islamophobia were very um, intricated with experiences of racism. For example, I remember one of my first uh, Islam, uh, racist experiences was when I was a, a child on the bus. My, I, with my mother, we were, we were carrying um, groceries and it was my sister's birthday. And uh, she, I was carrying the cake for my sister and she told me just, you know, sit on the, sit on, on, on the chair because, you know, you are carrying the cake. Mm -hmm. She was afraid that I might uh, <laughs> let it drop. So what I did, I was, uh, I, uh, I was uh, sitting here with the cake next to me. And uh, there is this uh, old man who came and uh, who was upset that uh, I was sitting and not... Um, standing up for him. I was just not realizing that mm -hmm. he was there. So, and he said, go back to your country. Oh my God. I have the right to sit on the seat because I pay my, my taxes. And you know, wow. you're like eight years old. Yeah. You don't even know what taxes yeah. are. And you said that you have less legitimacy than, uh, than uh, uh, this man because apparently he pays taxes. And then after growing up and reading about Rosa Parks, uh, mm -hmm. It was so strange as a child to be to be aware that you know here in Switzerland in schools they was telling you know it's so America was so racist that this was mm -hmm. happening in the 50s and uh, and it's still happening on a daily basis of course it's not institutionalized the same way but you know just having this feeling that you you had the same experience that someone is uh, that is in a history book had So this is a kind of, uh, of uh, you know, racist attacks that I had since early childhood. But as for um, Islamophobia more specifically, I remember a couple of, uh, of attacks that I had um, as a grown-up person. I could tell about a million times mm -hmm. uh, I faced Islamophobia, but I want to, to, to speak about that time where 
I had a, an interview with with a big company, and uh, the recruitment process uh, was uh, competitive. So I had four interviews. So I made it to the final stage, and. Um, I was called by one of the managers of this company, thinking that it was to announce me that I, I got the job. He told me, we're still hesitating between two people, and we just want to ask one question to, uh, you know, to, to make our choice. I was like, yes, okay, thinking that it was going to be, you know, like some technical question or, or HR or something. He asked me, what do you think about Osama bin Laden? Oh my God. So this was this was in a, and it was a big company here in uh-huh. in uh, in Switzerland, and uh, you know I was so shocked that I could, I could not really answer something smart or because I you know I was taken I was taken by the you know the audacity yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of the question. After you know the 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 killings in Charlie Hebdo. Uh, several uh, Muslim women around me told me the similar experience about, you know, job interviews with people asking them what do they think about uh, Charlie Hebdo and and what happened in Charlie Hebdo as if just by the simple fact of being Muslim we condone the fact that there are are terrorist attacks. So this, you know, conflicts with uh, uh, being Muslim and uh, supporting terrorism is something that is very common uh, in uh, in Islamophobic uh, attacks here, uh, whether it's in the streets, like Muslim women that are wearing a hijab and being insulted, or um, other t- types of um, of uh, discriminations where they always try to remind you that you must n- you must not be you know that peaceful normal person who just uh, seeks to. To, to have a job, go to studies, or uh, or go to grocery shopping, that you must be some someone violent who, who tries to you know hide their agenda or something, which is very offensive because you know you just want to live a normal life. It's offensive on multiple levels. I mean, firstly, uh, the largest numbers of victims of Islamic terrorism are Muslims, other Muslims it, who are not extremists. Are. Yes, and secondly, even if you loved Osama bin Laden, that has nothing to do with your job. I mean, it has, it's none of his business. <laughs> Maybe you loved Osama bin Laden, but like, why would you even think to ask that? It's, it's, and you know, it's this thing of, um, we have a last question to ask you uh, to, to make our final choice between you and the other person uh, that we are considering to, to hire. Uh, how is that, uh, how is that making the, the, the you know the choice yeah. clear. I mean, is the other person as well Muslim, and they are asked the same question, and both of both of us have to to prove which one of us is yeah. is is able to work in a in, uh, international workplace. I don't know, or it's it, and you know I think that a lot of of um, of things that happen. Uh, I'm not talking only about Islamophobia, but I'm talking as well about racism and mm-hmm. sexism and homophobia. It's, you know, this kind of uh, gaslighting where yeah. you know that something is happening that should not happen, but you don't have the, the, the possibility to really, to, 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 to really say, no, I don't want to participate in one, what you are trying to make me participate mm-hmm. to. I was like, I was taken aback, so I could not answer. And I spent 
days and days after this interview thinking about, I should have said this, I should have mm-hmm. said that, I should have been smarter and made that joke. You see? And, uh, but you can't in that situation. It, you can't, yeah. you can't. And uh, it's, uh, you know, many, many victims of racism or sexism or any other oppression for, for that matter, um, most of their, uh, uh, most of their, uh, they spend days and, and nights and so, so many time worrying, uh, you know, blaming themselves of not being able to respond the right way. Why we shouldn't. We should just say, okay, this this was shitty and offensive. I'm not uh, I'm not responsible of it. Uh, may I ask if you did get the job and if you did, what was it like working there? No, I didn't get it. Okay, I mean, on the one hand, that's absolutely abhorrent. It's obviously they discriminated against you, but on the other hand, it's like imagine working in a place where where the HR person thinks that it's okay to say that to you. Of course, yeah. of course. But uh, to be honest, I um, I got a, a job later um, at a small, very small company, small tech company, um, and uh, you know the recruitment process was perfect and all, but then my. Uh, when I started working there, my manager, who, who's been aware that I was fasting Ramadan, uh, started ha- harassing me with, uh, regarding that, for example, printing articles about uh, how Ramadan was uh, detrimental to health oh and uh, giving them to me. Or because I was, uh, as I was fasting, I was using my, my lunch uh, time break to, uh, to, to just rest uh, on a, in my office, mm-hmm. you know, close the door and rest. And uh, at some point, uh, he was like, if you're not eating, you're not allowed to have this uh, lunch break. What? Yeah. So he was giving, giving me things to do, job to do during the lunch break. Like he was, it, it was very obvious that he was trying to crush me and to, to make me feel as if I had no choice but not fasting while on the job. Of course, we are in a podcast here, so people don't see me. I'm um, a Muslim woman, but I'm not wearing a headscarf. So many of my friends who wear headscarves, they don't even get to be hired and uh, live mm-hmm. these kind of experiences. So uh, they live very uh, discriminatory and violent experiences on job interviews. They have this thing of, uh, do I put my picture on the, on mm-hmm. the resume or not? Do I have to remove my, my hijab at the, uh, before entering the job interview? But then after, if I get the job, they will tell me, that I lied up about wearing it. Do you know if any women have, like any of your friends, they do remove it for an interview and then start wearing it after they get hired? Well, uh, I know people who remove it before uh, going to work. You know, just imagine like every day, you know that something that you, you deeply care about, like wearing your hijab, and every day, every single day of your life, you remove it. It's some, some kind of violence. People think that uh, wearing a hijab is the, just like wearing a hat or a baseball mm. cap, but it's not the same. It's uh, for, for women who are wearing it, it's more linked to, to uh, their sense of ownership of their bodies. And um, one of them, she once told me, um, when someone asks me that I could just uh, take off my hijab for going to work, I don't feel that like they're asking me to remove a hat. It's like if they ask me to remove my shirt yeah. or my pants. Uh, just imagine having that feeling every day of your life, removing it to, to go to work. But some, some women don't have the choice. So, you know, they have this uh, very, they're very, they're resilient and they... 
they take they, they take upon them but it's not easy for them for them it's kind of uh, feeling torn between uh, the necessity of working and the fact that they know that if they don't remove it they probably would be either fired or not even hired so uh, for example i know women who have been thinking that um the fact that they wear a headscarf makes them impossible to have some type of jobs that include visibility towards public, such as being a cashier or working in a post office mm-hmm. or something, and uh, try to find to 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 find jobs that where they are more hidden. You you see, as if uh, we are to be ashamed of mm-hmm. what we are. I think that. Uh, also, you know, you have this um, under the, the etiquette of, uh, of uh, what is acceptable uh, in, um, in our workplace. There is a lot of uh, sexism and racism hidden under it. For example, I have a lot of my black friends who say, I, I, I cannot go to, for example, a job with my natural hair. Mm-hmm. Have That's to. what I thought of when yeah. you were telling me about the hijab. A lot of us will wear a wig, a straight wig when yes. we're going for an interview. Yes. Mm. And myself, I don't wear hijab, but, uh, and I have, you know, kinky hair, but when I go to a job interview, I, I straighten it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it takes me months to be comfortable to, you know, to have it curly and then sometimes to have it a bit more kinky and all. But it's as if they're say, saying to us, you don't look professional per se. Yeah, the, and the way not, you were born is not professional. Yes, mm-hmm. and it, and what makes you a professional is not your capabilities. It's not uh, the you know the degrees that you had, the experience that yeah that you can have. It's uh, uh it's like they they telling you that what makes you a professional is looking as white as possible. Mm-hmm. And this is what I why I say that under the, you know the the guise of Islamophobia and under. You should always consider, you know, uh, the colonial history of Islamophobia. It's not just about uh, religion. It's about more than that. It's mm-hmm. about history. It's about uh, what we share as belief, as what our society should be. We've been talking a lot about how women experience Islamophobia. Would you say that men and women experience it differently here in Switzerland? What you described, for example, when it comes to job discrimination, do Muslim men face the same type of thing? I think that Muslim women and men, they both uh, face Islamophobia, but where it's uh, uh, kind of, di- there is kind of a difference is that, uh, and it, has, it, it was shown in, uh, in, uh, by statistics in Europe in general, in countries uh, like France and also in, also in Switzerland, and that uh, Islamophobic violence and attacks, they are mostly targeted towards Muslim women who wear headscarves. Mm-hmm. Why? Because they are the most visible part of our community. Uh, communities, should I say, mm-hmm. because there is not one Muslim community. Right. Uh, but uh, so, for example, in, um, in uh, uh, statistics, they show that in France, more than 70% of Islamophobic violent acts are directed towards Muslim women uh, wearing headscarves. So that's why for us at the Purple Headscarves, we think that the fight against Islamophobia is, is a feminist issue. You cannot separate, separate the fact that Islamophobia is a gendered fem- phenomenon. Men also experience it. And also, you know, in practices such as um, racial profiling, 
and um, uh, uh, also discrimination on the job and things like this. Uh, men are as well targeted by Islamophobia, but I think that uh, Islamophobia is so gendered that uh, it must be discussed in detail why Muslim women and how Muslim women uh, are subjected to it. I was just reminded of something I wanted to ask if you'd heard about. Um, in the U.S., there is this uh, high school girl who runs track, and she got a really good time. I think she ran five kilometers in 22 minutes at a track mm -hmm. meet. Yeah. Um, and she's a hijabi. Yeah. And when they posted the results, she wasn't there, and she asked, like, why are my results not listed? And she was disqualified because of her hijab. Oh, wow. Yeah. I can tell you, I, I, there is one of the co-founders of uh, the Purple Headscarves, is a young lady that uh, when she was a teenager, she, she was uh, very into uh, basketball. And uh, she was in a basketball team. And um, once she uh, could not attend to, um, to a play, because the referee said that uh, as long as she's wearing a hijab, he, he's not letting her What? on the court, you see. So, uh, and this is... Does the referee even have that authority? That's, that's something I'm still asking myself. Yeah. But you see under the guise of uh, here is the typical outfit for this sport or mm -hmm. this competition, um, there are many things that, uh, that you know, don't take the, the face of Islamophobia but are Islamophobia. For example, um, um, in, uh, in Geneva here, you cannot go to swimming pools with a longer uh, swimming attire. Even me, I uh, have a, a swimsuit that has long sleeves. It's a regular yeah. swimsuit, yeah. but they told me I couldn't wear it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and you know, this, uh, this policy was, uh, was introduced in 2017, following the, you, you know, you've, I, I think you followed the, the news in France about the Burkini ban mm -hmm. uh, on French beaches. Oh, yeah. And you know, like, the, it happened like in 2016 and 2017. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, Geneva wants, always wants to mimic what happens in <laughs> France. But of course, always mimic on the worst things, yeah. not on the best things. Uh, and so they, um, the city council voted in favor of uh, new rules in, uh, in public um, swimming pools where where it was in the, in the rules, you have only certain type of swimming suits that are allowed. For women, it's something that should uh, not cover arms, like wearing only a bikini or a, a one-piece swimsuit, yeah. but, you know, uh, uh, and for men, only shorts, but not long shorts, short shorts, which is, for, which is uh, to be honest, is uh, discriminatory, of course. It was made to discriminate uh, Muslim women because when you see the minutes of the, the council, they only talk about Burkini and Muslim women. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, the debate uh, takes place about hours and hours, and like 95% of the, that time is... Uh, is about mo women and, and uh, burkinis and, you know, people being obsessed with how yeah. Muslim women should wear, uh, what sh they should wear at uh, swimming pools. Uh, but it's also discriminatory, for example, for... I have friends who, uh, who are trans men who are not comfortable, mm. for example, in early stages of their, of their um, transition to, to wear topless. And they would like to wear, for, for example t-shirt with their binder under mm -hmm. it or uh, I'm for example I'm also a fat person uh, I've not been to a swimming pool from my early teens up to my uh, early 20s mm -hmm. because I was too embarrassed to wear a swimming suit 
and uh, now I, I'm, I'm okay with it. But uh, a lot of women also t- tell me if there was, for example, a time in the swimming pool where, where it's, uh, it's not mixed, but it's only women, it's, uh, I would feel comfortable to wear a swimming suit. But uh, men harass me, so I'm I'm not feeling uh, I'm not you know comfortable wearing a swimming suit. So uh, it means that with the aim of discriminating Muslim women, there are also a lot of people who are discriminated against because of this. So uh, that's why also we say that it's a feminist issue because when you when you accept that uh, there is a political debate on how Muslim women should dress. You just accept the fact that it's okay to 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 uh, to address the the way any woman presenting herself. So that's why we think that uh, feminists who are in support of this kind of bans and in this kind of uh, policies, actually they're making a double standards towards Muslim women. They are just uh, okay with the fact that uh, Muslim women are policed in their bodies, but if we tell and you. As a person, would be you would you be okay to be policed in your in your in the way your body looks the the same way you agree with what is poli- uh, how it's made to Muslim women? They would say no. So either you uh, you admit that uh, the, uh, this type of feminism is a uh, is racist and patronizing. Either uh, it's not really feminist because you're you're having a double standard. So on the seventh of March. Switzerland held a referendum which upheld the decision to ban the burqa and niqab. And just in case listeners aren't familiar, I I will just explain the difference between a hijab, burqa, and niqab. And Inez, please feel free to correct me if I get something wrong. So the hijab is the headscarf that typically covers your hair and your neck. Not all women wear it like that. Like, for example, in Iran, a lot of women protest by letting their hair show and very loosely wrapping it. The niqab, your eyes are still visible, but basically everything from your head is covered and you wear a a chador, which uh, basically is a long... um, long dress that goes all the way down to the ground and basically you can't see like you know the shape of the person wearing it and then the burqa the eyes are also covered and there's just a mesh over the eyes for the person for the uh, burkini to be able to see out of um, yes and uh, one has to say that uh, also these uh, these types of, of uh, face uh, cover and headscarves in general they are not only um, linked to um, Islam and religion per se, but they are also very cultural items. Yeah. Meaning, for, for example, if we take uh, the burqa, is, uh, it's worn in Afghanistan. And of course, the word burqa itself was almost unknown worldwide until the U.S. invaded uh, Afghanistan mm-hmm. following, you know, war on terror. So this, uh, this uh, for example, when we talk in Switzerland about a burqa ban, it's already a misnaming of it because... Mm-hmm. There's no one wearing a, a, a burqa per se in, uh, in Switzerland. The women who are wearing, you know, a full face cover are wearing the, the, the niqab, actually, which is a more Middle Eastern attire, uh, which is more popular among um, people in, you know, Gulf countries. Um, so um, we say this is, you know, Muslim attire, the way Muslim women dress. But actually, it's not only... Uh, them wearing something because it's Muslim. It's also linked to their cultures or what they want to express about their bodies. So sometimes people try to to get into the debate, into knowing like what does the Quran say about the hijab and the niqab and the burqa. But this is for us. It's not a relevant question. 
we, we can just, you know, assume that people who make their own choices of, uh, of uh, you know, wearing a headscarf or a burqa or a niqab or whatever, they do, uh, they do so willingly and um, they have their own reason to do so, whether it's religious, whether it's cultural, whether it's personal, whether anything else. And we as feminists should not uh, mingle with the reasons to, uh, to do the, these kind of choices. We can just uh, work on the, these conditions of self-determination and self-agency. I am not someone who loves Borka or hates Borka. This is not my, de- my debate. This is not my place. I neither love Borka or hate Borka, but I love self-determination and I hate coercion. And that's why, as a, as a feminist, it's not up to me to, to even think about what does it represent in Islam. I just have to respect Muslim women who made the choice to wear it. What was your reaction and what was the reaction in the Muslim feminist activist space to the results of the of the vote? Oh, and I think I should just mention that although it passed, uh, both Zurich and Geneva voted against it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that uh, besides, uh, you know, besides being um, uh, here in Switzerland, uh, you, you have to, to see it in a l- larger scale that before being something about the Burqa per se, uh, this initiative was launched by the same people who, who launched 10 years ago the minaret ban in, in Switzerland. In Switzerland, uh, mosques are not allowed to have minarets, so mosques should not. And it's written in the constitution, in the Swiss constitution. Uh, uh, mosques are the only type of religious building that are not uh, allowed to be visible from the outside. So these people who launched this uh, minaret ban 10 years ago... Um, they are people who aim for um, the total invisibility of Muslim people within Switzerland. You know, you could say that their fantasy is to, to reach to the state where uh, no Muslim is visible from outside. And uh, the, the Burkaban was uh, launched by the same people. You know, these people, they are very aware that there are only 30 people in the whole of Switzerland that are wearing the burqa. But uh, for them, it's, you know, small steps politics because their aim is to ban the general, uh, more common headscarf. But they know they cannot do so easily in one, this, this one big wow. step. So what they do, they make this small step of banning the burqa. And then after, they want to make the, the second smaller step of banning, for example, hijab in some spaces such as... Uh, uh, town halls or schools or things like this, and uh, then after to to ban the the headscarf. So the thing that we are talking about here is that uh, there are very basic motivations uh, behind the 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 burqa ban, and it was launched by by you know nationalist extremist uh, mm-hmm. party, and um, we had a very strong coalition of feminists anti-racist uh, organization fighting against it and mostly by the national women's strike in mm-hmm. in Switzerland the greve feminist greve feminist so the greve feminist uh, who who was clearly uh, opposing the ban and who campaigned hard with us and actually the Flaviolet are part of the of the greve feminist mm-hmm. so i would say when the results came it's um it's not only the muslim community who was grieving this result, it's also feminists in Switzerland. 
now we will have in the constitution of, uh, of Switzerland an article saying how uh, people, women, have the right to to be dressed on, in the public space. And uh, now in 2021, 50 years after introducing the right to vote for women in Switzerland, uh, it's, uh, it's a regression in women's rights uh, that we accept that, uh, uh, that the constitution tells us what to do with our bodies. So then more specifically on Muslim community, I think that a lot of us, we're not surprised at all. We know what is aimed here. It's, you know, stigmatization of uh, the general Muslim community. And it's not because only 30 individual in the, uh, individuals in the whole country are wearing the burqa that, that we are immune, you know, the rest of us, of the stigmatization is, that mm. is playing out here. Uh, Muslims today are 5% of Swiss population. So that's hundreds of thousands of people. Of course, we, uh, we understand well, the logics behind it, and that's why I think that our long-term efforts uh, as a feminist and anti-racist uh, organization and behind it as civil societies to oppose uh, what is done here in the name of uh, guarding Swiss values, mm -hmm. while it's only about uh, discriminating and excluding. Does it mean anything to you that uh, Geneva actually voted against it? Does it say anything about Geneva versus the rest of Switzerland? Um, in most of the in most of the votes, Geneva leans more towards the left while, uh, when voting, mm. and uh, especially when it comes to, to uh, voting uh, on topics regarding migration or uh, diversity. Geneva is is a is a city which is so multicultural that people here are used to mm -hmm. to see so many different people that they're maybe less. Uh, playable by these fantasies of the nationalist party. And interestingly, the, the spots in, in Switzerland who voted against the ban are the urban areas, whereas the rural areas voted in favor of the ban. And to, uh, to be straightforward, it's the places where there is a multiculturalism and people are actually uh, um, living with Muslim people, having Muslim neighbors, having Muslim uh, co-workers, that were less uh, less in favor of that ban, mm -hmm. whereas the the areas where people were strongly in favor of the ban are places where actually there they don't even know any Muslim people. No, yeah. no, no. Oh. You know, most noticeably, you know, before um, voting on the national level about uh, the burqa ban, there are two cantons who voted on the uh, on the ban. It's a canton of Saint-Gall and canton mm. of Tessin. Interesting fact, and in the canton of Saint-Gall, which voted in favor of the ban in 2018 and started being applied in 2019, until now there was not a single occurrence of a woman fined for wearing a, a burqa, not because women removed their burqa, but because there are no women mm -hmm. living in that canton that at the first place was wearing any burqa. Meaning that the whole process of voting on something like, you know, the burqa ban in this canton, you know, like having thousands, hundreds of thousands of people going to the polls and voting was made for something that was not even existing there. So I think that uh, nationalism preys on uh, fantasies and uh, misconceptions and prejudice. Yeah. And of course, prejudice and misconceptions is easier to implement in people's minds when 
they have no whatsoever example around them of, you know, the banality of being a Muslim in Switzerland. Like, you know, we're being like anyone else. You go to work, you go to school, you yeah, go shopping. Yeah, we're yeah. grumpy before coffee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what is next for the Muslim activist community and what should allies do? Well, first... Uh, I would say that in uh, these pandemic times where we're all uh, wearing uh, masks, I don't know how a police officer would say that uh, someone is wearing a niqab or just wearing a face mask. So this is, I would like to to know how this is going to be enforced. But anyway, this is a detail. Uh, I think that we should be very aware that this was only a step and that they are there are things that are coming that we should uh, should be very cautious about such as excluding even more muslim women from work spaces and uh, sport venues schools education venues mm-hmm. and that um our next fights are to reinforce our anti-discriminatory policies in um in the schooling system and to abolish the kind of bans on Muslim attire that are that are existing formally or informally in sport venues, such as, you know, the burkini in swimming pools or uh, wearing a hijab while running, such like you said in the United mm-hmm. States, or in, uh, for example, a basketball league. So I think that uh, this is a fight that we should all carry on and and we should not um, fall for the for the trap of uh, thinking that um, when uh, when asked about the right of Muslim women to wear a headscarf, we are asked about our own personal opinion of what a headscarf is or not. I do not care if someone thinks that it's uh, sexist to wear a headscarf. What I do care is that they don't stop me from wearing what I should be able to choose to wear in a public space. Anyone can have their opinion of any item of clothing. For example, me as a person, I think that wearing high heels and uh, lipstick is also gendered uh, women's attire. It has a sexist history behind it, but I think that it would be so disempowering to, to, to ban them because so many women are able to uh, to reappropriate these items and to and to find their own self agency and and uh, autonomy through their choices so uh, falling for the trap of thinking that one item means only one kind of uh, of thing or is it is the symbol of oppression or sexism or anything it's to fall for the trap of the the racists. It's to to think that first we have uh, uh, all the you know same kind of mindset regarding to what we put on our bodies, but also and more uh, noticeably, it's accepting the fact that if uh, law has something to do on some of the people's attire, it's accepting that one day it's going to be the case for anyone. Maybe you know maybe tomorrow, with a sexist policy. People would uh, ban women from wearing purple uh, purple shirts with uh, feminist symbols yeah. on them. <laughs> what would what would stop them if there are already policies in places? 
limiting the freedom of one uh, group of women is limiting the freedom for all women. Inez, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me on this beautiful Sunday afternoon. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I really enjoyed that conversation with Inez. Yeah, I just uh, find that the way she was bringing in all those personal stories about herself and her friends around her, and uh, also it really stuck with me that uh, um, phrase that she used, like, you know, we're all just living our normal lives and we want to just live normal lives and people are making us out as if we're living these, like, extraordinary and strange existences. And I just think that it must feel like, you know, we're such normal people. Why are you making whole laws, whole national constitutional laws about us, like just living our normal lives? Yeah. And uh, I think one point that she brought up that was really interesting and poignant is that Islamophobia is so much stronger in areas where there isn't even that much of a Muslim population. It's like fear of the unknown rather than um, fear of a fear based of, from a bad experience that you actually had. Yeah, I think you see that in almost every uh, country that tries to pass some sort of uh, anti-immigration law. You see that the places that are voting most uh, for those anti-immigration policies are the places with the least immigration. Like as soon as you get like very multicultural uh, cities, which are full of immigration, you find that uh, any (laughs) um, ideas about uh, limiting that immigration just become ridiculous because the whole city would empty out uh, and people know that uh, immigrants are such an important part of that community. Yeah, so um, Inez brought up some really good points about what we all need to do as a society to prevent uh, Islamophobia from becoming even more entrenched and codified. Yeah, I think that uh, since we are a feminist podcast, I think it's important to talk about um, sort of feminist action in this space. And I think that there is uh, a bit of a misconception among some uh, feminist groups that uh, they are liberating, uh, you know, women who uh, wear the hijab or wear the niqab or the burqa by sort of campaigning for them not to wear it, that they are, you know, liberating them from their oppression or something. And uh, obviously, (laughs) this is not helpful in any way and uh, we like don't subscribe to that as women's march and I think we need to sort of get rid of this idea that we get to to, uh, determine someone else's uh, you know oppression like I think uh, Inez put it correctly when she said you know uh, there is sexist roots in you know the wearing of lipstick and heels but you know it empowers some women and uh, you know disempowers others and everyone is free to choose what's empowering to them so once again thank you for listening This has been We Can't Keep Quiet, and we'll catch you next time.